about being on a stage, about performing this poem that exposes like a lot of things about your life that you don't necessarily want to share with the public or whatever. Like those are the internalized fears that you're overcoming. And then once you're there, I think like slam becomes like this healing space that you constantly want to go back to. And so I think that like, that's what the biggest like. Hey everyone, welcome to the seventh episode of Saturday School. If you enjoyed, make sure to follow us on Instagram for updates at vision.inspired. You can listen to our podcast on Spotify or on Anchor at anchor.fm slash satschool. That's S-A-T school. Latanya Gaday. She's our episode seven guest. She's a TEDx speaker, founder of Eastside for Black Lives, youth poet laureate, and more. The list just goes on and on. No, I'm joking. It goes on. So, Batanya, thanks for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'll open up with your poem because I think you're pretty well known for this hyphenated identity crisis. So, I know this talks a little bit about like your your parents and your grandparents, their immigration story, and how that intersects with your identity. So, just like, tell us, what does this title mean? What does hyphenated identity crisis mean in the context of your writing? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think that I'm still figuring it out. I think what's interesting is like in writing that poem, I did a lot of just like research in terms of second wave generation of like Africans. So like there is this distinct culture between being just African and being in America through immigration. And then obviously, like the African-Americans that are here through the Middle Passage. And I think it was just this idea of like oppression exists in all forms, especially when you're an African immigrant, right? Like you have like xenophobia, you are oppressed, like whether that's from like your religion, from the way that you identify. And there's this idea of like, you have no place in this new home that you have to be here for because you don't have opportunities back home. So I think that poem honestly was just a like a, like a way of coping with like all of the reading that I was doing around like those different identities and how we come together. And I think it largely also resulted from being in a school that's super diverse, especially with our brown community that faced those similar consequences. So it was just coming to terms with, I'm also part of that kind of like ethnic enclave of I'm not American, but I'm also like not fully Ethiopian. And so this is me paving my own path. Right. And I think that's largely because also there aren't many Ethiopian Americans here or even mm-hmm. African descended like Americans if that makes sense and yeah. at like Newport or Bellevue so that was really what like resulted in the poem and like what I was wow. discussing in it yeah so like a, an expression of figuring yourself out though you still haven't totally figured yourself out and I know like you said yeah. in the poem and I, I read an interview it said you're figuring yourself out every single day and you're constantly moving around especially just as a poet and figuring out how you want to express yourself so is that Is that how you apply yourself when you're writing your poetry, you're doing your slam poetry or really anything? Yeah, I think like slam poetry is interesting in a way where like when you're on a stage, you're not really competing for yourself or like writing poems for yourself. It's often for the community around you or that's in the crowd. I always say that like where the most like political conversations or discourse happens is on a slam stage. That's really where you go to find like young activists, um, like politicians in the making um, really express their concerns and like issues that they have with their own city. So I think more of like 
instead of like as a means of understanding yourself as a means of understanding your community exists within like the slam community and so that's the reason why I do slam poetry is to be a part of something that again doesn't really exist in Bellevue um but I think independently like poetry writing um like the way that I'm working on my book that's largely different from the way that I've practiced slam poetry in that it's a lot about introspection and understanding like where my place is in the world it also intersects with just activism I think like Activism is another way where you're trying to understand yourself and understanding like the inequities that that kind of capture you in a moment and right. then putting that into your activism the same way that we put it into poetry. Oh, yeah. So how did you get started in slam poetry or like when did you get started? Um, it was literally like eighth grade. Elaine, I think you were there. I did that whole poem uh, on Martin Luther King Day. And mm-hmm. I came off and I was like, I remember that day too. There was just a lot of controversy around that poem, around the things that we were talking about in terms of just like slavery, racism, all that. Um, yeah. I remember thinking, you know, like I don't want every time that I write a poem or perform a poem, it to be receiving as this like very political, very polarizing thing where there's no one there to be like, you know, I see you, I hear you and I feel you. And so that's why I just did like a lot of research online was like, you know, where is a poetry community, community that exists here in Washington? And I found my way to Seattle. And there, like, it was largely different. You respect art and, like, it's a lot more about, like, taking in people's words instead of, like, seeing it as, like, an argument or, like, seeing it as something that is, like, um, threatening, like, your way mm-hmm. of thinking or ideology. Yeah, I I actually remember the poem you wrote um, talking about being an African immigrant and like sort of the intersecting experience of yeah being an immigrant and being black as well yeah and I, I also I definitely do remember how some people sort of saw it as an attack on themselves like you, they sort of felt like your writing was targeting them specifically so yeah I don't know no definitely I even think like in Bellevue what's interesting I feel like sometimes existence like me just existing in a space and is an attack on someone's ideology I think like like I could be just talking about something that's like cultural or whatever that relates to like my life or like the way that I understand the world and people grasp that as something that is like threatening their way of their life and so I think that that was just something that is always going to exist in predominantly white spaces. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to actually talk a little bit about this and maybe like this idea is undeveloped but what makes what makes you think certain people feel like like you existing, kind of like what you believe in your ideology, why does it feel threatening? Why? Like from your point of view? Yeah, I think that, I think first it comes with just like those very basic like stereotypes and prejudices people hold. I think that like that in itself is what right. in a lot of spaces, like I feel like when I come into a space, it's about like proving that, you know, I'm not like the other black girls that you've seen on TV or like whatever you do, like yeah. what you witness and it's like Mm -hmm. I'm well-spoken or like understand things and so there comes like that in-between moment between you get a chance to speak for yourself and that time where they first lay eyes on you I think that that gap really has a lot to do with like how people perceive you I think secondly it's also like there's this idea that like I'm not supposed to be in certain spaces or like when I take up opportunities I think it's like why there's this feeling of like why is she here that I've always experienced throughout my life so I think it's also about like people feeling like I don't deserve certain things or that I've gotten certain things through mechanisms in which like I didn't prove myself like other people did to be in that space so I mean like those are some of the ways where those like prejudice like come about in those spaces yeah okay that was really interesting I want to circle really quickly back to the poetry and writing so 
talk to me about your process of writing and like what about that process makes it so liberating like why is poetry such a powerful form of like empowerment for you in discovering yourself yeah that's also a really good question um yeah i think oh i think the first thing is just like hearing a poem like like specifically spoken word in a space it's just so transformative like it literally when you hear someone just speak in that way like po- like through metaphors no through i agree i agree like, yeah. different things it's very like yeah what's i was up? gonna say like i i read your poem about like the hyphenated identity crisis and it's like it's different from reading an essay because it's like it's like an art form in which the expression is a little bit unique but just keep going yeah no absolutely i definitely agree and i think like the way that you can address different topics whether it's like alcoholism whether it's like whatever oppression that you face whether it's literally like about getting up in the morning depression things like that when you hear someone do it in poet form it just connects to some like deep part of you um that like has always drawn like really deep emotions for me so I think that also relates to how my writing process goes because I do a lot of my writing based off of just listening to my favorite poems speak and trying to get into that mood into like that deep feeling of like writing with truth and with power and bringing it to life I think and I think that's what the process really is is like you have a you can always just like write a poem but it's like the process of bringing it to life that is always like the like the really hard part or the really like tiring part and like if I were to explain what that process was it's just like sitting there listening to other people talk about the same issues going to different spaces like whether it's like politics whether that's like visiting your favorite park or whatever and constantly going back to a poem and adding and adding to it and I think Mm -hmm. also the like first spoken word poet like I never finish a poem until I've gotten a chance to perform it on a stage because when I perform it on stage like I add words to it it honestly like the mood and the way that it's performed gets translated back onto paper after I realized like this is what I want the poem to be it's not what it was on paper but like how the way like the way that I performed on the stage so then it goes back to like you've performed and now you have to re-edit the whole thing so it sounds like the way you performed and then that's also what's so hard about like writing right now because like normal like paper form of poetry is just a lot shorter than a slam poem like a slam poem will be like four or five book pages but like I think like generally right now poems are like maybe a page or two pages so like it's really hard to say go into that process like okay what would it look like if I was speaking or performing this because it's a lot shorter and the impact is in different like emphases of a poem so it's like really drastically two different things I think becoming being a spoken word poem and like being like a poet in terms of writing. Oh, so like there's a disconnect in terms of like, I can express my words as I'm writing, but then I have to perform it. And then there's more of that, like bringing it to life, I suppose. Yeah. And I also think, I think the distinction that I was making is like, I also think people who write poetry, like focus a lot more on like the way that it looks like people use like slashes, like different (laughs) thematical things where it's like, it looks a lot different than then like a spoken word poem would look on paper I think is like the biggest like some poems look good on paper but they probably sound stupid when they're like reading them out loud yeah and there's some where they like intentionally space out the words to make like a certain shape yeah I mean and like they're there those kinds of things they work when you're put it in a book with thematically it makes sense like (laughs) there's this book called um there's a book by Denise Smith I forgot like what the name is but like when you read it like he does the same thing he he has like this whole page where it says my blood and then it looks like blood splatters all over it which Ooh, that's is cool. absolutely insane yeah. but it thematically makes sense but then there are other people who write like 
just meaningless things i think just to, for it to look tumblr or pretty or whatever there's that oh, okay. okay well i think we talked a little bit a lot about spoken word poetry so do you want to speak of it to like what performing is like because i think i would imagine a lot of technique and practice goes into it um yeah i think I honestly, I never, I never thought that there was like a whole process to like performing. I think it's really just about going to a, like to the stage and letting you be present with the poem and then like performing it. Like I think last year, I remember I brought one of my friends cause she wanted to do her first poetry slam, had never performed or never really like did public speaking at all. And she really just got up there and then like performed it the way that the poem called to her. Um, and then she ended up doing like amazing and now is just an amazing artist that's doing great things. Wow. I think it's really like, it's really, I think the biggest like barrier to entry, I guess, to spoken word poetry is like getting over your own like held fears about being on a stage, about performing this poem that exposes like a lot of things about your life that you don't necessarily want to share with the public or whatever. Like those are the internalized fears that you're overcoming. And then once you're there, I think like slam becomes like this healing space that you constantly want to go back to and so I think that like that's what the biggest like barrier is so wow. overcoming yourself yeah. as you're through the writing process pretty much yeah okay and so here's here's a question I have do you think you're naturally talented at just poetry in the writing space because and like I guess delivering the poem as well and performing because you know I'd imagine if I had to step up do a poem like that would be an absolute disaster just because I'm sure there's a way or a technique towards expressing that and then you talked about your friend who kind of just very naturally started succeeding do you think some people are just naturally talented or they have just a specific part of their identity that, that's so strong that they want to tell or just practice 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 I think it's a bit of like everything I think that like this idea of like being naturally good at something with like po like I think it's like you know, they're in always in all spaces, like you can be naturally good at something or you can learn to be good at that thing. It's really at the end of the day, if like you want to be in that space, you can guide yourself to be on oh, that. Okay. I'd imagine like, Aaron, if you went up there and were on that mic, right? Like if you didn't take it seriously or if it wasn't something that you needed. Well, I dropped some bars. Yeah, like if dropping <laughs> what you wanted to do, it wasn't, then like, then it wouldn't work out. I'll say this too, like you'll go to a slam and there'll be poems that hit and there'll be poems that don't hit. But at the end of the day, like, that person that didn't hit that one time can come back next week with like an amazing piece. So I think that like, also we recognize like words more than we recognize performances sometimes. Like if a line hits and you say it poorly, like people still like are like, oh my God, what did oh. you just say? So I think, I think it's a bit of everything. I think oh, okay. you get the courage to be on the stage. As you're standing on the stage, you know, if your writing is like, like, this is really delivering with the audience and you can tell if it's good or any, have you had like moments where you're like, yo, this is a flop. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely have moments where this is a flop. I think, no, it's not like, it's like, I think you'll like write your poem and you're like, okay, this, especially for slam, you'll be like, this line is gonna hit. Like, I know like this is too good for it not to hit. And there's a certain expectation when you get on the stage that when that line comes, people just get up, start snapping, stomping, or like start clapping, <laughs> just in the middle of your poem. And so how awkward is it when you're on stage and then the line comes, you expect for something, you do a pause, nothing happens and that's definitely happened to me but I think at the same time on the flip side what ends up happening is a line that you didn't expect was very good hits better with like an audience than you would expect than right. you didn't expect so I think it's like everybody interprets it differently than I suppose coming from you 
or like I think that as a writer you get so much in your head that you like try to plan things out of like oh, okay. what's gonna hit and then what the audience as a whole hears is completely different because I think that's what's different like people can misinterpret things or like reinterpret things as powerful but like you won't notice if one dude is just like out there snapping at yeah, you yeah, yeah. see when yeah. the audience does so wow it must be an amazing feeling too just like when you you're going through your poem and then people start standing up you're like you know you did this right at least no it's, and it's so cathartic it is i and i literally i miss it so much like i think that's the biggest thing is missing being on a stage it's like a feeling like no other i think what's also interesting is in seattle like our poetry community is very much alive and like that was what i was saying where like I remember like in 2016, um, we had Nikita Oliver was like the person who's going to run for mayor. And so she boosted her whole like campaign at a poetry slam event. And like, it's just like this feeling of like imagining like you performing in front of this person who's about to become mayor. Like, it's just all that kind of feeling always exists in Seattle. There's always someone important in the room and like it brings so many people together. So it becomes that more important when you're on stage. Right. And you said like the poetry space is really intersected with the political and youth activist space, right? It definitely is. Yeah. Okay. I want to finish off kind of this poetry thing with talking a little bit about the community because you keep on coming back to how like you meet really amazing people. You're able to present in front of really amazing people. Like tell me about one person, maybe someone who's kind of your, just like a peer who's really impacted you or really anybody who's really influenced you within the poetry space or just somebody that you like is your role model that you look up to stop I think I just said it I think like there are two the first one is Nikita Oliver who ran for mayor because she's also like leading the primarily leads like how do I explain it well okay she has like these two main projects one of them was like um making sure that a new youth jail wasn't going to be built. So in Seattle, we had divested and put a bunch of funding, like millions and millions of dollars into building a new youth detention site. And so it took her like six years using poetry, like organizing events, activism to finally get them to stop building that prison. I remember like over quarantine, even Seattle started redirecting more funds that was going to use to prevent like, um, just to, to provide COVID relief yeah. into building a women's jail. And I remember like Nikita somehow reached out to Angela Davis to get her to speak on like, um, just like telling people like why prisons weren't good and why like we shouldn't support this women's new jail being like from being built. I mean like Nikita is just this amazing mentor who uses like so many of these forms of activism and shows really how like artistry and activism can intersect to do those amazing things. So she's always been a role model. And like, I think that's, it's just amazing where like someone can like be a politician, but also like can release a book and like do a book tour and like do yeah. all that. So that's multifaceted. But I think like the second, I think the most like um, impactful like person that I've ever met was I ended up being able to meet like this young Rwandan girl because I was invited to speak at like a city bank, a part fundraising partnership with Rwanda Girls Initiative who worked to build like all girls schools in Rwanda. And I met one of like the poets that were that like needed like a mentor and I was just there right. to help her write her book. And I think watching how poetry can, like how poetry was helping her and her own community to talk about like women's rights and like advocating for girls' education and like the forms in which she was using poetry was very different from how I was using it here. But like just having that connection and that middle ground was just yeah. empowering. And it teaches you like why this space is so important. Yeah, because just role models are so important just because 
they can provide a template like and this isn't even about poetry just in any space like role models provide a template for you to like they tell you what is possible and like what kind of potential you can create but also just being able to be inspired by other people or you know paying it forward with that one Rwandan girl that you were talking about yeah. all right um let's talk a little bit about east side for black lives so this was an organization that you started during covid right during quarantine yeah yeah so there's obviously a lot to unpack here tell me a little bit about what the organization stands for and the beginning of this yeah that is a lot a lot i think okay so east side for black lives is made up of just primarily students and parents and families within the bellevue school district but we're largely in coalition with big organizations like climate strike washington if you're familiar with that educators for justice um uh, Black Minds Matter, just a bunch of organizations um, that are all focused to do like three main things, I would say, like COVID relief primarily um, in whatever form. So that could be literally supporting young students and getting like access to a laptop, like Wi-Fi um, and things like that to give them the support that they need under COVID. And then the second thing primarily was just in response to the Black Lives Matter movement around demands to um, remove um, school resource offices from our school buildings or disarm them. And um, primarily to also just make a commitment within the school district to hire more black educators. Um, and also re like revamp some of the um, like the historical requirements for um, our school district within our US history so that it requires a lot more education around African-American history. Those are like two main things. And then like, I think the third one too is just about like community organizing and bringing like togetherness. So I think we throw a lot of community events even if it isn't centered around like some tangible action just around like being in community to build that like coalition. We do a lot of, we did a lot of those events throughout the summer. So that's like the main three focuses. And it started, I think with like one protest that followed Seattle, like that followed like a friend of mine who heads Black Minds Matter, who did a bunch of protests to remove police officers from their schools. And so we decided that like we wanted to follow suit. So we hosted our first protest, I think in front of city hall demanding that they defund their um, police department, but that our Bellevue school district um, would divest funds away from SRO. So that's how it largely started. Yeah. I was just curious because like, it seems like so much of your organization's focused around community organizing, like you said, and mutual aid. So what have like the benefits of that been as opposed to like a more traditional nonprofit organization? Yeah, I think, okay, that's a really, really good question, because I think that what's interesting is, like, nonprofits have this, like, kind of lobbying, everyone thinks that they have this kind of lobbying, pro like, profile or, like, power to get, you know, meetings with, like, school districts and, like, legislators to change things, but I think that, like, if we had ended up, because we, there was a moment where we were, like, discussing, you know, maybe we want funding, maybe we wanted to do, like, more on-the-ground programs for a community, so, like, maybe we should become a nonprofit and apply for those funds. But I think what we found is that we wanted really to focus on policy and like expedite that process. And we did that like surprisingly well with Eastside for Black Lives. I remember like we had planned a two week protest on Juneteenth to meet with our like mayor, our city council members, our chief of police and our school district in one building. And the fact that our organizing and like the power through just getting parents and students to email to demand that meeting to happen and then it actually ended up happening on that day was 
literally insane and unheard of like ever and I think that right now we have like four bills that we've helped like reform and like are testifying for come January and that all came through like consistent organization consistent reaching out to legislators demanding meetings with them and like that has all been through like people being like okay I have a source here I know this person's going to be here at this time so we can meet them here I have this email and then also just sending out these wide emails that are like hey, legislators, we want to have this conversation around um, disarming our student resource officers. We're holding a panel and we demand that you be there. And then they're there. So I think that's like really- You all got some clout. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> you tell them to come and they're like, shit, I guess I'll go. No, and they come. <laughs> wow. Okay, okay so, so you've, ta- like, you've talked to these legislators and like you've obviously gotten exposed to them and exposed to the policy process. So tell me about what is your impression of them? Do you think- um, how do you think the, I guess the political system within like Bellevue, the greater Seattle area, or even on the state level, do you think they're effective? I think that what I've largely realized is that Bellevue is extremely broken in the way that our policies are ran and determined. I think, first of all, to start on that high level, I think that legislators are genuinely there for us. I think like people really get like apathetic towards what we can accomplish, but right. like Washington state has a lot of power in determining what Washington state does. So that's our school district. That's whatever, like housing, things like that. And that they're constantly passing policies. So if you come with a policy idea and they're, I think they're like more willing, more than willing to draft up like legislation and submit it and try to get a hearing for it and try to get it up for a vote. So I think legislators are definitely there for us. I think what happens in terms of like disconnect is you see that like within our districts in like, all across Washington state, the districts that are predominantly students of like people of color have more progressive policies like that are more willing to put into legislation by their mm-hmm. reps than places where there are less people of color. So I think mm-hmm. the question becomes like places like Bellevue where there isn't many people of color, but there still is a housing crisis, right? Because we still have like these massive economic like gap between like who lives here who advocates for them and who are we consistently putting into office that advocates for them and that goes from like the school district level that goes from our city council and all of that so I think I remember like being in a meeting with one of my one of our city council members like last week um, and we were talking about getting this piece of legislation or like policy passed within um, like Bellevue that would help like housing be affordable and would stagnate housing during like COVID so like people wouldn't have like it's practically like freezing rent and then I remember him saying, like, look, like we have a majority conservative base on our city council right now. If I decide to vote against like our mayor, which is Marilyn Robinson, it means that for different policies, I'll get punished for it. She'll either not put it on the docket or it won't even be up for like debate or discussion. So I think that's like a lot more like colluding and like strate- strategy that's based here in Bellevue because like progressives aren't what's dominating our politics. It's really like old people that yeah, are that's surprising just because Bellevue is a like Bellevue overall is relatively progressive right but the people in the city council there's a conservative like there's more conservatives right it's a four to three ratio yeah and when I say conservative I don't mean like actually like right-leaning I mean like they're democrats but they're like like more moderate very moderate very interesting yeah because I think like people make this assumption about Bellevue because it's so close in proximity to mm-hmm. Seattle that it is like this progressive hub and that's not necessarily the case because there's it's very different to be from here where most of the people are you know very highly compensated workers in tech versus like working class people 
in other parts of the Puget Sound area. So, I mean, I also think that like you said it there, like a lot of people work tech jobs, right? But what ends up happening is our cities safeguarding for those jobs, our cities safeguarding for like what they want and what their best interest is that like people who are working and like live in Bellevue get like disenfranchised or like the policies aren't for them. They're largely for like those people. I think like you look at city council members pages and what they've advocated for and like, they're like, I have three main goals for our city in our future. And it's like, we're gonna reserve our parks. We're going to like make transportation better. It's like, but like you largely ignore that there is a massive homelessness and housing crisis within our, like within our city. And like, it's on no one's platform. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's such an interesting balance because definitely like these, the tech jobs, the tech companies, they're a large part of like the economic development of Bellevue. And so legislators definitely want to maintain them. It's just like how a lot of tech companies have left California towards like Texas, Utah, and a lot of the other states on a larger scale, obviously, but it's also like there are other problems too. So it's, there's like no easy solution. And then legislators definitely have to figure out how to balance both like issues um yeah so as as a younger you know you're obviously as a younger adult how do you feel like this quote-unquote like broken system how do we create certain changes that we want so like for example you talk about the homelessness crisis obviously it's definitely not an issue easy issue to tackle but how can we make more steps towards advocating for certain policies that will make those changes yeah i think first it's about diagnosing the problem like why we have a homelessness issue within our city or like why our city council's never taken steps to like like to um address those issues i mean like the main reason that i've like kind of figured out was that like we so like what what bellevue does to deal with our homelessness issues kind of similarly similar to the seattle sweeps but on a more institutional scale by that i mean that like whenever we whenever like we have some like up in like homelessness some issues surrounding those issues. What ends up happening is that um, Bellevue moves them out of our city. So to our neighboring cities like Renton, that where there are actual homeless shelters. I'm pretty sure Bellevue, like Bellevue took like five to six, 10 years to build one massive homeless shelter that people have been advocating for for decades. And like, we actually don't really have a lot of homeless shelters. So our the way we deal with the issue is like, we're going to bust them out of our city. And then we're going to like, let our neighboring cities handle it. A large part of that is too, is because we want to keep Bellevue clean. And like, so that's the reason why like a lot of tech companies and things like that, like they think they're preserving their best interests by like making this a very clean city that like people want to live here. Like our school districts are great. Everything's great and perfect about this city. So I think it's about like going to tech companies and being like, you know, like you have to worry about the social impact that you have within Bellevue when you move here. Same way with like holding Amazon accountable for being in Seattle. It's the same thing that we have to do for like the people that move here, especially like people who move here to like live here because their jobs are like elsewhere. Right. It's like creating some kind of like social impact um, consciousness among everyone. And I think that comes through like organizing too, because I think that like even as much as activism or demands that you make with our city council if it's not in the best interest of the people that actually matter in the city in terms of like who has like political voice then like they'll never do it right so I think it's really about changing those minds before changing like a city council's mind as people who live in Bellevue what can we do to help expedite those reforms or push them harder I think again I think it's about literally like going to like tech companies around you and being like look 
you know, we have a homelessness issue and like, we want you to do like some kind of grassroots initiative to like deal with the homelessness issue. Or we, or it's about like saying, maybe it's as simple as like, you know, finding a way to like talk to people about convincing them to build just one homeless shelter here in Bellevue. Like finding ways outside of politics in order to like, for it to happen. And then, I mean, simultaneously, you can also reach out to like politicians to try to expedite those processes. I just think it'd be more effective like outside of politics, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, because as much as we can talk to legislators, it is like those large corporations that have all the social capital, the political capital, and like the leverage to create change because of how much money they have. And I suppose how much like they're able to influence the workers because yeah. there's really thousands and thousands that they're employing. And they have to get those employees on page. Yeah, there's just less bureaucratic um, steps and hoops you have to jump through too, I would assume. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I also think one thing that I just want to amend is like, legislators can't pass a policy that are like Bellevue is going to build a homeless shelter like from like the Washington state level it always comes directly from like Bellevue because they control all funding that they get from like state level that goes to district level that goes to like our city levels Mm -hmm. so like they have the money and they have jurisdiction over where it goes but like that's again influenced by like corporations so yeah Yeah. all right right, well let's talk about some other projects that you're working on First is you're writing a book. So um, it's a poetry book, right? It is a poetry book. So um, why are you writing it, Batania? <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Um, yes, I'm writing a book. Buy it when spring comes. Anyways, I think, uh, I mean, the you book- you hitting your deadlines? I am meeting my deadlines. Right. <laughs> my man- draft manuscript is actually due this Wednesday. And so I'm like, like running two hours of sleep writing this but so the book the book came just with like the seattle laureateship title like they have a series of like every seattle youth poet laureate is offered like a book deal with poetry northwest so that's really exciting i think i never expected to write a book at this age so it's honestly so so hard to understand like what i want to say to the world because i see it as like a message to the world and whatever story it is or like trying to encapsulate your whole life into a book is what I'm trying to do with like a poem book, I think, um, which is just a lot harder. I think that other routes that I could have taken was like speeches. Like I do a lot of like, I don't know, like community engagement or like I perform a lot of places. Yeah. So thinking of making it as like a catalog of like all the different speeches and doing like, you know, like this was at this climate strike Washington mark where we were advocating for this, just kind of to almost like document what's happened in the last year and a half. But then I was like, no, and then made it way harder on myself trying to write poetry about my identity. So that's what the book will be. It's called Broken Tongue. And it'll be just about, you know, second generation um, kids. It'll be about just being Black, being a young woman, um, and all that stuff about war, politics, all that stuff. All right, we'll be on the lookout for that. So is that going to be on, like, Amazon? Or, like, how is it going to be distributed? Yeah, I think my pre-order date will be in like a month. So you could pre-order it off of Amazon. It'll also be on the Poetry Northwest page. It'll also be on the Seattle Arts Lectures page. But you'll um, give us a free copy, right? I mean, I mean, I don't know about that. I'll do, but I, you know, but what I will do is I think- You'll thinking, sign it for me, right? You'll sign it for me if yeah, I Yeah, before you become copy. famous. I'll sign it for you. I'm thinking about doing a book release kind of thing. So books will be free if you come to my book release Zoom party, so. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that could be the first book of many more books to come. So, you know, 
because you're yeah. only you're only 17. All right, let's talk. I want to we have this Q&A edition where we ask questions. But before we go on to that, I want to talk about Bellevue City Council. This is um, a live live breaking news update, which is basically you're looking you're considering to run for Bellevue City Council, right? Yes. Oh my god. First of all, you said Bellevue Youth City Council when you Wait, first did I? <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah. <laughs> okay, whatever. We'll keep it. Bellevue City Council. That's a correction right there. So um you're you gonna it? run Bataille? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about it. <laughs> you know, it's a good question running. I think first of, first and foremost, like what like a message I'll guess I'll send out there is that like I feel like as young people, there's this almost like idea that we have to like go to college and then like do this and we're on a timeline and like we're competing with everyone else like around us but I think that like what this process even if I don't end up running has made me think is that like it's okay to take a gap year it's okay to take positions like these even if you are young and then like follow whatever pace that you want to do because I think when I was like considering this a lot of people were like but what about law school then you're gonna be like 29 and still in law school is that what you really want and it's honestly Your like 401k is not gonna be filled up by then it's okay it's only year. like a couple years difference you know exactly it's only a couple years difference and I think that's just like that's what's the most important it's like you're not on a timeline but in terms of city council yes I'm considering running just because what I said we have like a very centrist like um majority on our city council if one seat is flipped so that it's progressive that means a lot of different policies will be back up on the docket and we'll be able to vote for a lot more progressive things fixing our housing issue our homelessness issue fixing a lot of our like school district issues things like that um that suddenly comes back into play and i think that the opportunity has presented itself just because i was actually helping um run a campaign for the person that was I was going to help run the campaign for the person that was going to run, um, but they decided to drop out. And so like now there's this opportunity of like someone else being the front runner or candidate. So it's exciting stuff in the works. Yeah, but I, I resonate with the thing about how you said this timeline where we all like we go to college, we go to graduate school, I mean, depending on your career, and then we go to our jobs. But it's interesting how a lot of our paths are just set relatively to what other people are doing it's like a comparison to what others are doing so like if others are going to college I probably should be going to college too even though um you can probably pave your own path even though it's probably more difficult and less guided but um yeah go ahead Batonia. I was gonna say that like I don't think that the path is necessarily harder or like so vastly different I think like people find their way I think there's just more stigma around people who do follow the generic path to be like your life is the worst or like you had a much harder path because you didn't go to college and I think like in my case necessarily it's not even about like not going to college it's about either you know maybe making a decision to go to UW and be a city council member or taking like a, a year break and then going into school and I think that has a lot to say with like if you know what's interesting with like people who like politics is they're like you know I want to be a senator one day you know I want to be a rep but then they think of it as this like 10 year path where it's like, you have to go to law school, you have to like work for an administration. When it's like, if you're already an activist in the community organizer and you have the power around you to run for office, why not run now and start that work now? If you, if it's, if it's within your means. So I think yeah. like, that's what yeah. I don't why do. not? That's I think another big thing is people's perception of success is so centered around financial prosperity rather than like actually finding a fulfilling career that's very impactful in your community so like I guess it's it's really good that you're looking at it through the that other lens yeah so um 
last question before we go to Q and A is what information, what things do you need to know to make your decision? Like what is stopping you from making a decision right now? Um, I think first it's just like getting, <laughs> getting decisions back from college <laughs> to see what my options <laughs> are on the table first. I think second, it's like, I really, if I want to run a campaign, I want to make sure the right people are with me while doing it. So it's, a, it's not just about convincing myself, but convincing the people around me that this is the right decision. I think a lot more people are more apprehensive of me doing this that just like care about my well-being and my future than I am. So that's honestly, that's major, majorly the East Side for Black Lives folks just being like, is this what you really want? Um, I think it's also about like, I want to develop a platform that means something and I don't want to win off of being like some moderate just to get the position. I think like that's what's happened too long in Bellevue and I won't waste two years of my life or a year campaigning um, only to like fall short and only to like to crumble and be like, you know, I care so much about being elected that I will compromise like my politics for the position. Okay. I think I'm a little bit afraid of that because I want to be like an, an AOC here in Bellevue and I want to stay true to my morals and true to the policies that I want to be enacted when I run and when I get elected. Right. And I know that if I like compromise that and then I get elected, then, you know, I become like just a talking piece, right? Like I don't have the power that I set out to get. And I think that's largely what my biggest fear is right now. So, right. So like knowing first that you want to actually do this and then two is knowing that you can still maintain your position your politics while also actually having a shot to win exactly right. so we're now going to move on to our guided q a segment this is just a series of alternating questions that aaron and i, aaron and I are going to ask so our first question if you could go back to 2020 who would you have voted for in the primary election for the primaries yeah Bernie. I wouldn't have changed my vote. Okay. Um, next question. What's your What's the biggest pet peeve you have? Um, I think people who chew loudly and obnoxiously. How has COVID impacted you on like a small scale and a big scale? Um, I've like learned to appreciate nature. I go on walks with one of my like, like Omar lives like right by me. And I go on a walk with him like every Sunday for like three hours in a trail. It's honestly so soothing. Love it. Nice. Nice, nice. Okay, question four. Where do you see yourself ideally 10 years from now? 10 years from now, I see myself deep into Stacey Abrams' campaign for president. I see myself at the White House, you know, just, just really, standing there at the White House? Just standing there. <laughs> that I think I, either that or I see myself... I don't know, starting to build a career within the UN, just those kind of stuff. Maybe, hopefully, like, I'm out of law school and I can do, like, legal counsel work for, like, the UN or I'm working at the White House or something like that. Okay. Next question. It's kind of similar. Where do you see yourself realistically 10 years from now, if that's any different? Yeah, realistically, I see myself graduating from law school and working big law. Like, I see myself. <laughs> Selling <laughs> the bag. <laughs> Selling your soul to make sure Google is not getting its monopoly busted by the... Yeah, that's literally what they do. <laughs> like, they work from, like, 7 to 9 p.m. writing that those papers. <laughs> you're you're going to, like, advise Mark Zuckerberg how to, like, answer his question when he's getting <laughs> testifying. All right, um, question six. Who is your biggest style inspiration? 
style? Like fashion? Yeah. Fashion. Oh my god. Um, wow, that's a good question. I think Yara Shahidi is pretty good. I feel like makeup, Yara Shahidi, I think, um, dude, I really just like 90s fashion. Like, I think like any, like, I think like 90s fashion, just like the vibes of it, but also just like, I'm really like the idea of like cottage gore with a mix of like business casual. If you've ever seen wait, that. I, wait, cottage what? Cottage? Like, cottage core. Like the Europe european like long maxi skirts and yeah then- but then like mixed with like business casual tiktok has honestly ruined fashion for me i think that like what i thought was unique now i see everywhere and so i'm like constantly trying to find something so now like- you have to innovate beyond yeah, you have to like mix things that don't go together but I, I will say this i feel like the people with the best fashion sense is those where like their whole closet are thrifted because i think it's mm-hmm. like the idea of like putting pieces together that like don't aren't sold together or are in proximity to each other and then like making something like a fit that you're like okay this is cute like, tuck this one in my under my bra like pull this down a little <laughs> like this and it's like okay it's a look I really like that okay so follow-up um, question which thrift store is your favorite to go to I think it has to be it has to be Goodwill like Goodwill is just too the Seattle one yeah there's also this okay there's a secret spot the bins no, not the bins. Oh, okay. I can't. I have asthma, and I feel like if I just like walked in there, I'll have an att- like an asthma attack. <laughs> okay. But there's this like okay, so like it's on your way to Seattle, but if you go through like Renton, there's this thing called like a Saint Vincent Paul or something like that, where it's just like this like it's in the middle of nowhere, and it's this thrift store with everything is so cheap, but also they get so many don- donations, but like no one ever goes there, and there's no teenage girls or teenage boys there, like mm-hmm. everything is just up for grabs, and everything's so cheap, and it's just- So what's it called? Uh, Drop the name. <laughs> I thought, I thought I did, it's like St. Vincent de Paul, or like St. Okay. something. Right. It's so good, it's so good. Okay, um, our next question, what is one life-changing novel that everyone should read? Just one. I think, I think, I don't know, like, not a novel, but I think this is, like, a book of essays or, like, whatever it is, but, like, there's this, there's this piece of literature, I guess, called Woman Warrior by Maxine Hong Kingston, and it's just about, like, her being, like, Chinese-American and, like, grappling with, like, bunch of Chinese like cultural customs and like all that stuff and then and kind of like internalizing it as first generation there's this like one story that she tells about her aunt who like um was part of like this village and it was like do you know what I'm talking about okay there's this story that she talks about and it's called like I think that chapter is called no name woman and it's about like her father's sister who was part of like who was in their village and then she was like impregnated like early like out of wedlock and it was like it was a story about how her village had like reacted to it by like burning down her own her old family store and in the end she had like committed suicide by jumping in the well and because of that like even generations after like no one named like no one talks her father doesn't talk to her like doesn't call her by her by her name and it's like this like unspoken ghost that kind of follows the main like protagonist throughout the whole story is this wow. idea of like, a no-name woman and so I read that and I just think of like Ethiopia and like our cultural customs and how it's exactly like that and like that kind of just idea of like women in your line that have been like put into like 
you know, marriages from a very young age that have been silenced and like kind of forgotten and like mm -hmm. the grief you hold as a woman in your lineage or your ancestry, like knowing that there were women like that that are just like gone and like lost forever kind of thing. Yeah. So one last message to anybody who's listening, Batanya, how can people take initiative and like create any sort of change disrupt within their respective domains? So beyond like what they're, so within the domain that they're passionate about. Yeah, I think it's like um, care about an issue, like anything, any social justice initiative that like has something to do with you and like just take action. I think the first thing is like if you're so overwhelmed about like, oh, like you're not the right person to do it or whatever, just like know that like you have the power within you to enact the change that you want to see in the world and you also have a responsibility to it. I think that like it can be as easy as going to your first protest. I think a lot of people had trouble doing that the last first last year is like you know doing things behind like a phone or like in in spaces where you're safe and you're and you're comfortable means you're not pushing yourself and you aren't advocating for activating that change so put yourself in uncomfortable positions um and enact some change in the world in whatever way you see fit i think it's also about like molding the world that you see so whatever vision that you have um, whether that is through like tech, whether that's through like um, like poetry, like I did, whether that's through writing, whether that's through like a nonprofit helping tutoring kids, whatever it is, um, just be active and be passionate. Spend time doing it. Yeah. So invent the future. Don't let it come to you. Invent the, that sounds way better than my rant. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you heard it from here first, Batani. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me again. Shout out to Batanya for being a guest on our seventh episode of Saturday School. If you enjoyed, make sure to follow mission.inspired on Instagram to keep updated with our next episode. We'll see you guys next time a week from now.